0: I'm delighted today to speak with Dr. James Kirby about his very recent publication, Choose Compassion, uh, why it matters and how it works. From the back, a timely and groundbreaking expose on how compassion can transform the suffering we face in the world. That was from Craig Foster and choose compassion is a delight. A Rich, Humane and Beautifully Written Discussion of How We Can Be Our Very Best Selves. That was from Professor Paul Bloom. And I think it would be worth just reading uh, from Professor Paul Gilbert. This book is a gem. It is full of up-to-date findings, reflections on crucial conceptual issues and self-help guidance, all presented in an easy-to-understand way. It will be essential reading for anyone interested in how to cultivate and promote caring and compassionate behaviours in oneself and many areas of life. James Kirby is the co-director of the Compassionate Mind Research Group at the University of Queensland. He studies the effectiveness of compassion-focused therapy interventions in helping with self-criticism and shame that underpin many depression and anxiety disorders. James also works as a clinical psychologist in private practice. This is his first book. And of course, James is a very dear friend of mine. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. James Kirby. I'm particularly excited <laughs> um, and rather than dog ear the book I've put in little, uh, lots of little important passages that, um, that I, I want to be able to to go back to. So I'm, oh, cool. I'm, I'm delighted uh, about the, the publication, James, of Choose Compassion, why it matters and, and how it works. Congratulations. How does it feel oh, to, be I- a, to have a book?
1: Yeah. Um great, but weird at the same time. <laughs> Probably something you can relate to, I suppose.
0: A little bit. Although I, you know, it is it's it's sort of um I mean you're getting lots of really great feedback and and you know, kind of it, it seems to be sort of making its way all over the world and you know, people are <laughs> doing the photos and you know it's,
1: it's yeah, that's cool. It's good stuff. It, it is stuff. it is um sometimes don't know like it's exciting to see it but uh you know it's sometimes um uh, at a loss of what to say back outside of just oh you know that's amazing thank you so much yeah yeah, it's great but uh it does feel a little bit um i don't know you can't i'm just not used to that kind of attention i suppose you know Mm. usually the, the feedback i immediately get is all related to papers or grants I've submitted, where they've just ripped me to shreds. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, what was done? And, 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 and this is completely different. You put it out there, and you get all this beautiful kind of feedback. Yeah, um, uh, it's been a nice uh, balancer, if you will.
0: That's actually fascinating to think about that because, yes, a lot of your. Work gets kind of scrutinised, and often it, it's also very highly appreciated. But it goes through that process of of kind of critical review and so on. It's fun to have something out there that's just a a colourful, lovely offering. Uh, <laughs> I've got a lot of exactly. questions. I've got a lot of questions for you, actually. Oh, so we'll, okay. we'll we'll um we'll, let let's sort of power our way through all of that. I'm going to get sure. you you thinking a little bit, perhaps. So sorry about that. <laughs>
1: Come <laughs> into this in this relaxed frame. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: um, well, what I wanted to start with was I'm going to read the last paragraph of your prologue uh, okay. because it struck me right at the outset, you know it was it was inspiring. but um human beings aren't perfect. We can be irrational, biased, sexist, prejudiced, and more. But we can also be profoundly compassionate. Over the course of this book, I'm going to examine not only what compassion is, but also how we go about deciding to be compassionate. I will look at how our emotions can get the better of us, and how our logic can at times make us appear cold-hearted. I will consider humankind's confusing contradictions, such as ignoring mass levels of suffering, but then going to extraordinary lengths to prevent the pain of just one person. I will look at how compassion is developed within our families and cultures, and how compassion can be healing for those experiencing mental health difficulties by going on this journey i hope to answer a big question with climate change mass extinction genocide and war can humans really lay claim to being compassionate i think we can it gives me little shivers to read that you know, right it does right from the start you know sometimes i do find myself feeling a bit pessimistic you know just when I think humanity is is kind of you know moving in a good direction or whatever something happens um and it kind of hits hard so you know like I I wondered if you could talk to begin with just a bit about this optimism I guess that you feel you know where that optimism comes from and you know like where you think things are heading in the world in terms of compassion
1: the big questions starting Um, with the big ones (laughs) yeah i do have uh a lot of optimism uh i I think i've always just by my temperament have been pretty optimistic uh, uh about everything uh in life although um sometimes that can be kind of misread for some naivety or something like that but generally speaking my principle has always been like you know people trying their best um people have goodwill at heart um uh and uh, so I try not to judge too much on what the actual intent of the of the situation could be. So it's kind of like you know maybe it was just a mistake or something like that. And um, I probably got that from mum <laughs> more than anyone. Um, and so that quality in mum, I, I think you know probably you know through a whole host of n- nature and nurture has kind of uh, come in me. And uh, so I, I tend to try to look at the world uh, probably in a more optimistic way. Um, but of course it's very easy for that to be, um, kind of uh, almost what's the word drained out of you, uh, you hop on the news and, uh, social media as well, of course, and you just read and hear all this terrible uh, stuff that's going on. Um, so that does get you down and does get you kind of, uh, a bit angry and, and then disenchanted <laughs> and then anxious and so yeah uh mm-hmm. you know that's why i kind of started the book like that because it, it seems on one end here we can be um talking about a book that only talks about compassion like you know that's amazing that there's a world that we can have books like that and there are so many terrific books um in that space it's just fantastic um so it shows that people are keen and wanting and are interested and have an appetite for it however on the other hand um you know you see all that kind of dread and horror um you know it's sometimes hard to reconcile the two but I I think for me what what it comes back to is there is so much good going on it's just we don't get exposed to it a lot of the time and so uh, I think I've got in there maybe it's in the prologue or maybe not but Fred Rogers um who does a lot of work um Uh, with children's shows uh, around emotions and understanding emotional well-being and and trying to connect you into neighbourhood. He always says, you know, always look for the helpers whenever there are these disasters. And lo and behold, you know, you look at climate change, um, you look at war um, and what's going on there, and you look at, uh, you know, the sexisms and the prejudice that are going on, and you can still, in all of those domains, see so many amazing people um, and groups of people are trying to, t- you know, address it head on. And, and they're getting movement. They get change. And you sort of see with waves across history, um, change occur. And sometimes if I get too caught in the moment, I forget historically what amazing things have transpired, um, you know, over the last even 50 years, let alone 1,000 years.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I'd see that you, you have a, a kind of a, a optimistic temperament, I guess, and, and, you know, sort of passed down from your mum. But there, there is also just this anecdotal evidence, whether it be observing people now, noticing the changes over the many years. And But of course, the thing I really appreciate about this book, too, is is that it disentangles some of the research for us. You know, there's it, it actually scientific evidence in a sense that that starts to make us or help us to feel a bit compassionate you know we're getting we're getting a handle on human beings and compassion mm-hmm. and what it is and how to kind of cultivate it and and sort of continue mm-hmm. this this journey going forward you know the the research evidence in a way is is cause for optimism as as much as anything
1: yeah i think you know and this probably ties into probably bit of Maslow kind of theory and, and Rogers, you know, a lot of us have an internal drive to, to want to do things better. And, um, and I think part of that wanting to do better or, or progress um, as a species very much involves looking at ways that we can help cooperate, share and, and work together. And, of course, this all fits under that big banner of kind of pro-sociality of which compassion plays a, a central role.
0: So let's dive in. Um, Chapter one, (laughs) compassion. So you sort of explore compassion, empathy, sympathy, various kind of, um, I guess, terms or constructs. You, You talk about motivation versus competencies i guess and and um yeah. so just just sort of i don't know riff off that a little bit what what are some of the what's the <laughs> essence of of some of the differences there really from your point of view and yeah. we're trying to really pin down what compassion even is
1: yeah um yeah everything uh, has different um every construct uh, seems to have a, a different uh uh, definition um, in psychology and compassion's no different um, you know we can't even agree necessarily on what an emotion is or um, what's happiness and um, so what's compassion there are some different views but um, the, the kind of view that uh, is kind of common a lot a, amongst many is this idea that compassion's kind of this motivation it's this motivation uh, to be uh, uh, sensitive to the suffering you see and then trying to do something uh, to alleviate and prevent it. And so there are many things that can help with that process. So um, for example, uh, being emotionally moved or being sympathetic can help, you know, that you engage um, uh, in in compassion, Uh, the same with empathy. So being able to uh, get a sense of what the other person's thinking and and feeling can be a really useful informer uh, to compassion. Uh, but, you know, you know, empathy, compassion is all about suffering and empathy doesn't have to be about suffering. So there was a terrific study recently done where uh, the researchers, researchers found we're, we're far more often engaging in uh, empathy with positive states than negative states. So empathy you can use beyond just uh, a suffering state. We're three times more likely to engage with empathy with uh, positive states than negative, whereas compassion is always sort of focused in on um, the suffering element, which empathy can, of course, help with. But that kind of means you've got to be able to sit with some, at times, unpleasant emotions or thoughts, uh, which we can find really difficult. So I know some people can sit with sadness really, really well. Uh, However, when it comes to anger, that's kind of difficult. Uh, So uh, when it comes to empathising with someone who is feeling angry, that might be difficult to do because... Uh, there's this uncomfortability that comes with experiencing anger and anger is just a bad emotion you should never experience it and as soon as you kind of have that kind of association with it it becomes difficulty becomes difficult to empathically bridge in Um, but equally like you don't have to be 10 out of 10 um, in sympathy um, empathy or distress tolerance tolerance to help with that process of engaging Um, in compassion they can all be used at various levels some things are going to pull on my heartstrings more than others Um, if they can still help me kind of engage with it um, that that's the idea
0: Mm. yeah so sympathy we feel moved towards being helpful empathy we sort of try to understand what's happening and how to be how to be most helpful and distress tolerance helps us with the the emotions or other sort of Feelings that might come up you know in the context of suffering because it's sort of approaching those those negative emotions it's funny because you start chapter three uh with the statement we can't be compassionate to all if we rely solely on our emotions yeah so can you unpack that a little bit in terms of yeah what you were just saying about feeling more or less moved towards suffering and Versus this piece.
1: Yeah, I mean, there are many dimensions to that, I suppose. But um, we get emotionally moved by things that are uh, kind of important to us. Uh, So, you know, if I see my son upset, well, I'll be emotionally moved by that. Um, But if I'm on a plane and my son's getting upset, the passenger behind could be quite irritated (laughs) by the fact that my son's getting upset and isn't kind of emotionally moved. And rather, they might be having thoughts like, why'd you bring your bloody kid on this flight we're going on this for the next 13 hours or whatever it might be (laughs) you're flying from australia so um depending on who that target is that can kind of uh shift our kind of orientation very quickly um Mm -hmm. towards the suffering uh, we see and uh, uh, we can either become very blaming towards them oh yeah it's their fault kind of thing because you might not like the person or whatever it might be. Uh, but if it's someone really close to you, if they're experiencing suffering um, and you really care about them and you really like them, um, we kind of will get swayed by emotion. Then, then, and, and then that emotion is obviously critical to get the action stuff going. So th- those emotions uh, are, are kind of bring that energy. That's kind of really helpful to kind of get some um, uh, behavior uh, into gear. And of course, when it comes to compassion, the behavior, um, could be so many different things uh, depending on on the nature of the suffering you're addressing but um yeah i mean so as a result of that there have become boundaries on where my emotions will kick in uh and, and be helpful at addressing the upset versus um uh, those outside of that kind of inner circle almost um who um i don't even see they don't even register like you know I'm not even noticing or aware of they're not in my kind of attentional sphere Uh, um, or conversely um, uh, I might even think to myself well yeah they're 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 kind of deserving of it so there's no kind of emotional kind of movement of um, sympathy uh, towards their pain it's kind of like well you know no you know just rewards or karma or whatever it might be can kind of come into to play and they're not particularly helpful obviously for compassion they come but they're not particularly helpful the other part of it and this is something I talk about much later in the book is the idea emotions are really good when it's one-on-one interaction of a compassion exchange uh, but as soon as those numbers start to increase um, and we start to hear a million people are caught up in perhaps a crisis um, those numbers can be so overwhelming. It can kind of feel like um, there's nothing I can do. My help would be a drop in the ocean. And and that can kind of lead people to feel um, uh, I can't be of help. I can't really make a difference. And, uh, and, and so they don't. Or alternatively, they feel so uh, personally distressed and overwhelmed by it. Um, they turn it off and disconnect.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess what I got from the sense is is the sort of the the point about we can't rely on our emotions it sort of sounds like what you're saying is that um emotion emotional aspects can be very important in compassion and can be part of the motivation and so on but actually sometimes the emotion might be too much and so we we sort of end up you know kind of backing away but sometimes the emotions can be um, can actually sort of turn us away because of sort of more negative emotions towards that person that that might just naturally arise in us. So if, if it's not emotions we rely on, how do we choose compassion in a, in amidst all of the emotional yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of storms and weather systems that we that we have to go through? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah absolutely. I mean, it's a great point you make actually, because I'm I'm thinking about that now even more. Like when I say rely, um, there's that aspect of will it in, get me going and acting compassionate or not. Yeah. There's that part. But when you say rely, it also is I'm kind of thinking about it, you know, is it something I can trust in on? Like is it is it yeah. a reliable source of information? Um, which can also mean that perhaps uh, I engage in too much behavioural kind of action um, because the target is someone who is super important to me, say my son. Um, and it's actually maybe better if I hold back sometimes when he's struggling to see himself work through some of the pain. Um, um but knowing I can come in and help at, at a different, different moment, perhaps, um, mm. you know, sometimes you can jump in too quickly. Um, you know, so sometimes again, uh, so it's kind of like the emotions, they letting me know there's some kind of distress. Um, now what do I do with that distress? And, and sometimes if the person is really close to me, I can feel even heightened, even more distress, and I must listen to this. I must do something immediately. And in fact, um, uh, that's not such a, a reliable source of information to draw from uh, because it's only listening to that emotion, whereas actually that's my emotion response. Um, what's the other person? How are they dealing with it? How are they going with it? Um, And would this be if it's not, you know, imminent hurt or pain, but it's more about a struggle and distress around effort, maybe there's a chance for me to sit back and let them continue through that, making mistakes, allowing them to make mistakes, uh, recognizing that that's part of the learning process. So sometimes those emotions can block and stop us from certain groups, so we can't rely on it for behavior, but equally, sometimes they can be so powerful, they get us to take action, which perhaps... um, we don't necessarily need to at that time.
0: And if I think about it, this is the the beauty of the title of the book, in a way, you know, choose compassion, <laughs> which yeah. which really it's interesting. It, it's it's not necessarily, you know, just being kind of um, automatically moved towards compassion, but it's a it's a choice. There's a there's almost like a a cognitive element too, or something about you. You go on to talk about morals and values, I think, and the role oh, that yeah. those might play, and and that sometimes we might choose compassion even when we do feel angry at that person whose child is crying on the, on the airplane or whatever, because <laughs> of certain values that we might feel, even though our emotion might not guide us that way.
1: Oh, exactly. So, you know, that, that's, that chapter really is trying to focus in on this idea that, you know, if we, if we want uh, sort of compassion uh, to be realized globally, like on a global scale and, um, you know that's something that a new global compassion coalition steered by uh, rick hansen and jennifer Nadel, are, are really doing um is is this sense that uh emotions help with the everyday you know people we're, we're interacting with but if we can't trying to think of how would we go about creating environments uh whether those be working environments home environments or um uh you know whole country or city uh, based environments what could we do to help facilitate um, compassionate uh, interactions or help, uh, uh, you know, our most vulnerable? Uh, and sometimes that requires us to, to kind of think more about, you know, uh, what it is that we're wanting. So sort of engage in an element of mental time travel. So let's imagine, you know, five years from now, how do we want to live um, as a society or as a species? Um, and where do we want to put some energy and effort into in order in order to help uh, those particular people um, or groups or environment, if you will. So a lot of us has been doing a lot of time travel around climate and around what we need to be doing now in order to prevent disasters happening in the future so that um, a lot of life, um, both animal and um, plant life and, and human life, can can kind of uh, be protected and saved. So that's kind of really compassionately motivated uh, at its source, but we're engaging in all these kind of future thinking and planning and um, problem solving uh, in order to address it in, in multiple uh, ways um, at country level ways um, uh, organizational level ways and in kind of individual kind of ways but so I kind of get to this idea that um, if we want to recognize compassion more at a, at a global scale um, uh, we need to start to you know emotions aren't particularly good for that that <laughs> they aren't big it's not sensitive necessarily to to that uh to the same degree, and also um, that means thinking about groups typically beyond your concern, uh, and so again, it requires kind of okay. Well, let's connect with you know what what um, perhaps morals or ethics you have. The other part to that though is you know compassion is often um, in the moment. You know you kind of suffering stumble you stumble across it. You know either personally or um, uh, you know walking past someone. Um, or someone calls you or something in distress so compassion is often a reaction to what's come in at that point Um, but equally um, I might not see it but I might be thinking to myself oh how would I like to invest or spend my time Um, or what could I perhaps do asking that question what could I do to be of some kind of help and sometimes that means okay well I might seek out ways that I might proactively uh, do something or take some kind of action to help a group so you know, um, takes some of my donation behavior. Um, There's a group called Effective Altruism that tries to look at where money can be best maximized. um, So you can get best return on on helping uh, life. Um, And that takes out some of the emotional judgment I might have about what charities are useful to support or not support. um, And gives gives me a sense of um, taking that emotionality out because uh, often we donate to to uh, uh, charities that get us emotionally stirred up or we've had some kind of connection with, with where there's emotion. And as a result, there are some areas that receive a lot of our support, but a lot of other areas that just don't at all. And so that's where I think, you know, the thinking part um, mm. can, can really just pay devil's advocate a little bit. Okay, is there any other way you could spend that money, James? Mm. Or is there anything that you're doing uh, on an instinctive level that's great but also perhaps means someone else misses out hmm. you know so just little sort of things like that just to broaden the kind of awareness so just chat to someone my wife cassie i'm thinking we should do that what do you reckon is the uh, you know at its core it's good but is, is there something else i've missed you know so just that kind of stuff
0: yeah there's sort of feeling thinking values planning committing there's sort of yeah. a, a lot to it so where does all this come from i i um I saw a, a Dalai Lama post on his Facebook page. I assume it's him <laughs> posting. It was, it was on the 13th of April, 2020. And he said, I, I think he talks about this a bit, but he, he sort of said, I often think of my mother as my first teacher of compassion. Uh, she was simple, un- uneducated, just a village farmer, but so kind Um uh, kind hearted, and her kindness was unconditional. Uh, it's the love with which she nurtured me that is the core of the compassion I can find in myself and feel for others. Um, this very basic level of affection is natural to human beings. And I, th- I mean, you emphasize this in your book as well. And I, I know this is a, a very important, impactful part of your, your work and your research, and, and that is just the importance of family uh and you know sort of those early experiences and and the role for that in in all of this cultivating compassion so
1: yeah, your thoughts yeah there? no that's probably yes yeah, probably if I still list the top three take-homes that would probably be number one how important family is uh mm. for compassion I mean there was a big study done uh in Finland with uh, two and a half thousand uh individuals who they tracked over three decades and they were trying to predict what factors predicted compassion levels 30 years down the line and they looked at a whole host of things you know gender cohort um, social economic status um, mental health uh, difficulties and so on and the number one the only significant factor that predicted the compassion 30 years down the line was the emotional warmth that they got from their parents and so emotional warmth is just really important, which is actually, which speaks directly to what the Dalai Lama has kind of said there in that tweet or uh, Facebook post. <laughs> so um, uh, gracefully, certainly much better worded posts than my posts tend to be. Hey, look at me having the ghost. <laughs> 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 He's coming out with this wisdom. Um, uh, you know, the emotional warmth, Uh, that we get uh, from uh, our primary caregivers is is crucial for so many things as well as um, compassion down down the line and your work has even done that Stan so work you've done I think with uh, Marcella and uh, Alison Creed maybe Uh, is that right who looked at emotional warmth in childhood helped buffer from psychopathology or or feelings of shame or something it was like that um, Mm. as well so memories of being able to you know, if you can access easily memories of that emotional warmth and safeness that you had in childhood, um, it can buffer from, uh, you know, psychopathology. Uh, but also, uh, it's I think you found it had higher levels associated self compassion as well. That's
0: right. Yeah. The um, the the findings there were interesting. In that the the sort of early memories of warmth and safeness predicted, uh, sort of better psychological well being, but that was mediated by the the self compassion. Um, and the flip side, I think, is is true too, because, but by, by the time we get to chapter five in your book, you know, it, it's it's sort of you, you comment about how shame, uh, childhood memories of high shame and low warmth yeah. um, really lead to higher fears of compassion. You know, so I guess early life experiences and experiences in one's family or one's caregiving kind of arrangements can can sort of influence thing, things both ways in a way.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely, and it, and it's kind of. Um, almost catch 22 or you know uh, chicken or the egg kind of scenario and and so much of like well yeah compassion also predicts parents willingness to give emotional warmth to their kids and so you know how how does this all work out it's kind of tricky it's all kind of um, uh, you know linked in without kind of definitive clear well this is where it starts and so on but these are the factors that are implicated within and Fortunately, there are things we can do to help increase parents' uh, emotional warmth if it is an area that that needs a bit of help. But equally, we can also improve compassion as well. So there are many uh, pathways in to trying to be of help depending whatever the difficulty is. Uh, But certainly, if your childhood has been one where your primary source of care has also been your primary source of threat, uh, it can become very difficult for people because all of a sudden uh you, you know those kind of immediate kind of schemas or, or beliefs that you have around um they're loving with loving comes care affection warmth but with supposed to be loving but they're hitting me or calling me names or you know just ignore me completely um that can really disrupt um the attachment relationship but then can also generalize beyond because it's like you know trusting other humans becomes very difficult. So uh, how do I trust a stranger? You know, you've got no connection to me at all. Why should I trust you? My family, I should trust because, you know, I'm their kid and, you know, they should be loving and I can't even trust them. So why should I Why should I trust you kind of thing can, mm-hmm. can kind of happen for some, which is obviously terrible. But that's where the fears of compassion can, can kind of come from.
0: You really influenced me the other day we were talking and you mentioned that... Um... The, the study, and I'll, I'll, I'll get you to describe it actually, but um, it's the one where they compared supportive texts versus supportive phone calls oh versus supportive face-to-face conversations, I think. But I'm not sure if those were the three groups. But that seemed to be a very practical tip almost in terms of how to cultivate warmth, you know, in your relationships with maybe kids and stuff. Can, can you just tell us that study again.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, this was a study with seven and a half year olds uh, who had to do a really stressful task so that it would have to be perform difficult math and verbal problems in, uh, in front of a, a group, of panel of adults. Um, and uh, of course, that's very stressful uh, and they don't get any feedback from the adults. So it's done in this kind of very sterile way. And of course, uh, they can never complete or uh, successfully the task. So it's very upsetting for the, the seven and a half year olds. And then after they finish that uh process of around 15 minutes or so, they're put in uh, one of four groups. So one group is they get to see mum, be with mum, so touch and everything and here. Uh, one is they can uh, just be left alone uh, for 15, uh, you know, for the extended period of time. And then the third is uh, they get to speak to mum on the phone or the fourth is uh, they get a text message from mum. Now, mums are always instructed to say the exact same thing back. So that's kind of controlled for across those conditions. Um, And what they were interested in was the release of uh, oxytocin uh, in the seven and a half year old. So oxytocin is like a a bonding hormone often, a kind of sense of, you know, sometimes it's kind of referred to as the love hormone as well. Um, It has a lot of roles, but that's one of them. Uh, And also they were measuring uh, cortisol in the child, which is obviously a stress hormone. And they wanted to see if oxytocin was being released and if um, uh, cortisol was dropping uh, in those conditions with with mum. Now, I immediately thought, like most people, well, um, being left alone would be the worst, for sure. Um, And being able to be in the presence of mum would be the best, absolutely, for sure. Um, And I didn't really know what the other two, how they would fold out. Um, But you already know the answer, so there's no point in in, in guessing around. But what they found was being able to speak to mum and the the presence of mum, those two groups were equally as effective at releasing oxytocin, reducing cortisol. Texting mum had no influence whatsoever. It was like um, you were left alone. And so for me, the kind of take home from that study was how often do we, after experiencing uh, a setback um, or a disappointment, regulate that experience through texting someone we care about? Um, And I know I do that a lot. It's almost second nature. You know, you go in, you do something might be after this podcast I text Cassie oh it's horrible <laughs> but you know we're hoping that has um an emotional impact on us when we hear back from that person oh I'm sure you're okay I'm sure you were great I'm sure your jokes were fantastic you know kind of the reassurance that kind of comes back um but uh, perhaps that's not as as powerful as what we think it is
0: yeah. um
1: and it's incredible how powerful voices you know so you know sensory modality is really important in terms of how we experience information and what that information is trying to convey and um, tone of voice is huge and that's one of the biggest things that led to the development of cft was paul honing in paul gilbert honing in on this idea of what is your inner tone like how are you speaking to yourself what's that effective tone like Um, how do people talk to you what's their tone like and you know as a baby uh, as babies uh, one of the best regulators we have is um, our tone of voice also touch of course um, but tone of voice and touch but yeah Mm. how we speak to each other matters and how we speak to ourselves it matters
0: and so in that study the being in person with the mum or speaking to her on the phone were equally effective and texting and being by oneself in a room were equally ineffective or yeah just to say it in simple terms
1: yeah. yeah, it just didn't have an impact. and um, Didn't have an impact, uh, yeah. We, we rely so much on um, texting. That's still okay, still yeah. find it. Um, yeah. But obviously the texting doesn't carry uh, the emotional meaning or sometimes we read the text in the emotional state we're in, right? So you're yeah. frustrated reading the tone and there's still that leaky in. whereas when you have the presence or you're hearing, you're actually getting a disruption to that emotional state mm. by this other um, emotional state coming in of course
0: mm. yeah no that was that was very food for thought you know because i think we do yeah. rely on texts i i have a a son who's currently away at school these weeks so um you know <laughs> i've wow. I, I i was sort of texting him but then you know after our conversation i thought you know i i really should ring him give him some wise soothing <laughs> you know verbal
1: tones from his father but uh, he didn't answer well, so yeah. that, was, that was that well he does what we all do right like i tend to screen phone calls a lot um because it's yeah. just like i'm busy on just text us um but you miss that emotional miss connection it. and we yeah we minimize how important um conversations are like verbal conversations are there they are really helpful and because yeah. uh, they show we care about each other and it's vibrant and buoyant, and it often goes better than what we think but, you know, it's not that every interaction has to be via voice. It's just like if you are distressed and you're wanting to regulate the distress, you're much better being able to hear someone's voice than than none.
0: Mm. Yeah. No, I think it's a really, really great, um, you know, kind of practical tip. Um, and actually your book was full of of uh, various practical tips, I, I thought. It was, um, I mean, I, I, I always love your compassion in the morning practice i i think you um attribute that to to paul mostly but absolutely. um but yeah page 97 everyone uh there's, there's a, a a great little pra- practice there
1: that that james offers us but yeah so tell us about that one yeah it's just a, i mean it's absolutely paul gilbert he calls it um compassion under the duvet but i'm australian so duvet doesn't really cut through and i was like right business and uh so i went with compassion in the morning uh, um you know or, or even compassion with my coffee uh kind of thing hmm. um but it's just a way to orientate the beginning of the day and and i kind of it really resonated with me because i am not a good morning person i think you know that about me stan i um i don't enjoy waking up up early much i haven't i per- I'm a-
0: I must admit, I haven't been there in that moment very often. But... <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> but no, um, I have heard. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Paul Cassie's bared the brunt of, um, you know, just waking up and just everything's a bit of a grumpy kind of soul. You know, everything's tricky. And- Of course, you know, you wake up and you do all the things you're not supposed to do. Check the phone, see your emails and, you know, just and you're already behind running late and they all tend to stack up. Um, So this is just a way of cutting through that. And really, the idea is um, you just wake up and maybe just connect to your breath just for a cycle or two, no more than 10 seconds, 15 seconds. And then just kind of welcome yourself uh, to the morning uh, using an inner friendly tone of voice, an emotional warmth voice, uh, if I can. Uh, So that could be like, hi, James, or or something like that. And usually when you suggest that to someone, they just start laughing. And that's exactly kind of what you want. You're kind of looking for that kind of um, emotional fun or playfulness, if you will, uh, to start your day. Um, And then it's kind of like, okay, after I've welcomed myself um, to the day like that, it's kind of focusing in on, okay, if I was to be at my compassionate best, uh, how would my day look? How would I relate to people how would I talk to them um how would I feel towards them what actions would I take and so on um and that just immediately not that I have any data on it but that immediately um uh, transformed how I'd start the day and um you know it often um I mean like I, ro- I roll over give Cass a kiss on the cheek get out of bed and I, this was really important to me because um I was about to become a dad, and. Um, And I wanted those first interactions with him in the morning um, and and just generally anyway, um, to be ones where um, I was giving him the sense that it was good to see him, you know, so I wanted to give him that kind of feeling. But if I woke up grumpy and um, I was afraid with that, like, would I get irritated and frustrated? And there are many opportunities to get irritated and frustrated. (laughs) <laughs> so I was kind of like i need to do something to address this so there was a strong motivation to, to really do it too
0: yeah and it's just a great example of um something well sort of smallish i mean it doesn't take a lot of time at least but it 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 begins the day with a choice you know that that's that's a that's the first moment of 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 choosing compassion setting a compassionate intention uh you know yes. sort of with family and and so on but then you know kind of uh, leaving home for the day and, and you know, it just begins begins the day from a compassionate motivation. You know, the, 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 it's Paul interesting.
1: And, yeah, Paul and Nico maybe do, um, I think it was them who came up with it, but um, maybe someone else did. Um, but this idea of if you are upset and you looked at your face in the mirror and it was, say, um, an ang- your angry face that you were looking at, and if you were looking at that angry face, looking at you upset, How would you feel? Or you know, do would you want to tell them what's upsetting you? Mm. Or you know, what would you like to do? And it's kind of like you know, so often when I'm upset, there can often be this anger directed internally at me, and it kind of is that kind of feeling of being frowned upon, being looked down upon. Whereas if you change that to imagine an emotionally warm face, a face that's really interested in you, and and you know is is delighted at seeing you if you if you have that face look at that face in the mirror and you imagine being upset and going to that face how would you feel Mm. you know what would you like to do you know what would you say and it it, for me doing that uh, exercise in a a compassion uh, retreat totally had a profound impact on on my immediate body kind of jolting kind of oh my god contrasting that with the warm face to the angry face just had a massive It was just chalk and cheese. So I'm thinking when my child comes up to me upset, you know, sometimes I'm getting angry because they're too loud and that's the upset part. You know, they're up, they're upset. They're really loud. And if I'm coming with the anger, it's not really like the angry face kind of thing. It's not really a face you want to go to or turn to or or feel like it's been (laughs) emotionally supported.
0: Isn't that interesting? It's all these, all these sort of little, parts of our humanity, the the, the voice tone, the face express facial expression, you know, they're, they're so key really to, to switching on something, you know, something that then kind of leads to compassion.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I mean that of course ties into that morning routine exercise, uh, I yes. suppose. Um, you know, just yes. deliberately and on purpose in that. Um so small and so subtle, but um, you know, I'm very grateful for it.
0: Yes. And I love that. I love the word delight, you know, like I think there's something very powerful in um, experiencing or offering others a a sense of, of you, you're delighted to see them, you know, that that's a, that's a really, you know, kind of great place to start any interaction. There's, there's all this stuff, um, you know, kind of in the body and um, you mentioned HRV, heart rate variability uh, oh, yeah. I guess, which is a sort of an interesting kind of segue from voice tone and facial expression and, and body and and so on. Um, it, it's in Chapter 7, The Difficulties of Self-Compassion. What, what is HRV and, you know, how does it relate to compassion and self-compassion in 20 words or less? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, HRV or heart rate variability is just a a, a, a biometric really um, that we can use to get a sense of what the body is experiencing. Uh, so it's highly linked in uh, to your parasympathetic system. So if you think of your body with the autonomic nervous system, uh, the sympathetic system helps with all that arousal of energy um, to take action, do things, uh, equally protect you from hurt or danger. Um, whereas the sympathetic system um, has almost the opposite influence on the body uh, where it's trying to, to, to really slow things down in many ways. Um, and so it has like an opposing force on the body's vital organs that your sympathetic system has. So your sympathetic system would, for example, uh, um, not be sending energy into metabolism, you know, mm-hmm. metabolizing at a point where you're wanting to take action isn't useful um, uh, uh, use of the, the the energies within your body. It's wanting you to take action, move, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But if you're parasympathetically activated, um, you will go into a state of. Metabolism because you're no longer wanting, pushing, trying to get away from, etc. So, um, sometimes the that kind of parasympathetic system um, is sometimes referred to as the rest and digest system uh, as well. And if you've got high parasympathetic system activity, um, that's indicative of um, a higher heart rate variability. So HRV is just a measure of parasympathetic system of the body. And of course, what we're trying to do with a lot of uh, uh, compassion training is to try to help the person uh, to be able to uh, self-regulate their distress in ways that are comforting and reassuring to kind of shift away from a, a dominant kind of sympathetic system which has a lot of stress pressure urgency um, and if overstimulated for a long period of time can lead to you feeling burnt out shut down and rather trying to be able to strengthen this parasympathetic. Um, uh, of your autonomic nervous system so that it can help you during those periods of stress, particularly um, in the recovery post-stress. So you can't stop the stresses. They're going to keep coming in. Um, but how do you relate and, uh, and and respond to yourself after the stressor has passed? And so um, compassion can really help with that. Um, and compassion is really associated with much higher um, heart rate variability. Uh, so there's a significant Association between the two, um, and, um, De Bello, Christiana, Ottiviani, and Nico Petrocchi have done some amazing work looking at, at that kind, of, those kind of associations. Mm. Does, I don't know. Uh, if that was a lot more than twenty words, but I don't, that's you know. great. That's great.
0: But but I, I one quick little question: um, Does the sympathetic and parasympathetic also map onto the cortisol and oxytocin you were mentioning before, or is it, or is it you know kind of more complicated than that? I suppose.
1: Yeah, it it kind of becomes um, very complicated with a lot of lot of moving parts. So um, just by I mean I mean in some ways in in Paul's earlier days he kind of did did do a bit of that kind of linking in. Um, however, at the same time, like oxytocin, if your offspring uh, are at in danger of getting uh, like imminent danger of getting hurt, oxytocin is the big driver to kind of like protective kind of. Um, uh, mm-hmm. The behaviors you know to look after the kids so it kind of stimulates a sympathetic kind of you know fight response um so you know these these hormones depending on the person and your relationship with that person or group um kind of works in, in kind of complicated ways yeah um robert sapolsky quite a lot about some of this work um in his book behave it's a terrific book
0: mm. okay well we're really starting to sort of map it out across the chapters you know like i can <laughs> sort of see the spider diagram in my in my mind you know there's the emotions (laughs) we've talked about the thoughts we've talked about the physiology or bodily sensations you know where does the attention go how do we sort of shift that about um and the motivation behind it all um chapter eight was really interesting to me because you talked about suffering and but there was a bit about you know how it seems humans kind of like to suffer you mentioned (coughs) paul paul bloom's work (coughs) Um, Paul Bloom's work about um, the the pleasure associated with suffering or chosen suffering. And I thought chosen suffering was an interesting term given the title of your book. Um, It was (laughs) sort of um, sometimes people might choose suffering or something. But what is this suffering and and pleasure kind of paradox all about?
1: Yeah. uh, Well, you know, read Paul Bloom's uh, The Sweet Spot, um which talks about the pleasures of suffering he he will do a much better job than i paul's paul's extraordinary uh, paul bloom that is um, We're well, both pauls uh, <laughs> i must name my next kid paul <laughs> it must lead to, <laughs> to good but um yeah essentially a lot of uh people uh, will have this hedonic view of life that really you know um it you know happiness is the core thing we should be chasing and you can kind of accumulate it across time. You kind of add up all of the happiest moments and, and the sad moments and at the end of the day, or bad moments, and you want to, at the end of the day, have more happier moments than bad moments, and then that's a that's a good life. Um, and so, you know, hedonists really kind of push that kind of, um, you know, way of thinking and everything we basically do, um, whether or not we, we recognise it uh, as such is kind of driven towards maximising that kind of pleasure element of it um, but paul kind of talks a little bit in that book um, and, and me a little bit in this book um, is, is there's really two parts is you know we can uh, fear anything but equally we can take pleasure in almost anything too and there are people who take great pleasure in watching horror movies for example i don't really um that me you know either. some some humans take pleasure in shocking themselves I kind of talk of it in the book there about yes. how people will even at arcade games uh, pay to hop in an electric chair and get a shock. Like I would never do that, <laughs> but some people enjoy that kind of stuff. Um, and, and, and so, you know, he unpacks that to to a degree uh, in the book, what I was really trying to focus on was this idea that uh, you know, not all suffering is equal. Like, you know, we kind of use suffering as kind of like a broad term, But, you know, suffering can encompass so many different forms of suffering, like emotional, physical, lack of resource. Um, But equally, um, there are things that I will choose to do uh, for a reason, for meaning, um, which will come with a lot of effort. And that effort can often be very draining. And I can be anxious about meeting deadlines, frustrated and so on. Um, And so I experience these, these discomforting, Uh, emotional experiences or suffering but it's all towards something i've chosen and it's meaningful for me um so one could be writing the book you know writing the book was something i chose to do but writing at times was just um really hard (laughs) there were swear words and i don't know stuff you know giving up all this kind of stuff so i was suffering but that was a very different type of suffering uh, to the type of suffering that you might experience uh, if you were to be beaten up by your dad right mm. and so you know being beaten up by your dad you haven't chosen to be beaten up you know this is not something anyone would want mm. um and you're still you know as you're beaten up you're feeling anxious scared vulnerable um upset um so you know uh, i talk about suffering a lot but you know that's that kind of suffering is of course not not equal and um sometimes the the strategies we talk about is being compassionate to that suffering or being compassionate when relating to your distress. Um, you know there's a lot more nuance in that you know sometimes it is very important to recognize people are, are fearful um of, of doing that because they've gone through some horror um which is not the same as being upset because um my sentence didn't flow as well that i wanted to mm. <laughs> for when i wrote so i kind of try to unpack that a little bit you know um so we've got we've got chosen a, a life areas we want to pursue and um if we've got if we see them being meaningful uh, we 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 we're willing to tolerate the 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 suffering that comes with it hmm. think of running a marathon or whatever yeah. it might be even parenting is a bit like that you know um there's some good research that shows your happiness drops significantly as you become a parent in those first early years compared to pre-being a parent uh, but the meaning you derive in your everyday life increases hmm. um and then there are other factors that will also influence that, how much support you have around you and childcare and, and so on. But um, yeah, there's that, I mean, I'm, there's probably a lot there you can kind of dig into, but. Um, oh yeah. I
0: mean, uh, there's, it's a, it's a really fascinating chapter. I I thoroughly enjoyed that. And I, I guess it, yes, it is. There's a lot of things that might be good or good for us or mean a lot to us that we do, even though it, it causes us, you know, kind of sort of some suffering but but you know um not all suffering is necessarily the same and being kind of aware of the chapter is called the anatomy of suffering i guess that's what you're trying to to sort of disentangle there i mean i have just um relatively recently joined a gym and i've started zumba classes (laughs) and in that
1: first class i suffered (laughs) exactly well i mean but the thing is it's not purposeless suffering right that's right Um, and and it's the same as in therapy, like, um, when we do things like exposure, and I'm not, I I, I read somewhere recently someone say we should stop using the word exposure, it's not a great phrase. Um, and they're like, What are some other ways we could call this process? And um, someone said, Oh, I call it Courage Quest with my kids. I was like, Ah, that's the coolest name ever, like, that, that is something I'm interested in, I want to engage with, I'd want to do, and it's kind of like. You know, sometimes if people have a strong fear to compassion, one of the ways to work with it is to slowly bring them into contact with compassion so they can start to have a different experience with it and start to learn um, a more helpful way of engaging with it so they can benefit. Um, But that's purposeful. Bringing them into contact with that, though, is still distressing, but it's purposeful distress. We're not doing it for any old reason just to make you, again, um, experience more pain. It's not a saddest. Um, We're doing it because we know through very good science that if we expose ourselves to these experiences, we start to be able to recognise that they are safer than what we had experienced in the past. But also um, we can learn new ways of being with it um, and actually start to take joy within it as well. Um, So it's purposeful. And you kind of explain that, um, you know, with the client as part of informed consent about what it is you're going to do or what's the aim of it. Um, but, you know, you're going to Zumba, you're not doing it just to, you know, pain yourself. You're doing it, you know, I would ima- imagine, partly for your own health. Yes, that's right. That's yeah, right. Yes.
0: Um, but that, yeah, I mean, you know, a, a good life or a life that's good for us isn't always a life that feels good. It, it can be. And this is why strength and courage and commitment, are, you know, sort of are all major parts of compassion for others or for ourselves. Um, chapter nine went on to talk about the when compassion collapses, and you, you mentioned that notion um, a little bit earlier. And then chapter ten, compassionate contradictions. I was just going to read another whoop, little sentence. <laughs> book how looks much, good. How much should, was? Yeah. Here is the receipt. How, how much was this book? <laughs> 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 but you say here, humans are walking contradictions, and in our compassionate behaviour, we're no different we take actions to be compassionate, but still do other things that may cause suffering. Um, And you mentioned there that you discovered almost a contradiction of your own, you know, that, but that was previously unknown to you, the the sort of the orangutans, orangutans. And and people can hear, read that story in the book, but, um, but I thought it was interesting because that it, it was sort of like a contradiction. It was sort of, outside of your awareness. And when it came into your awareness, I, I think it motivated you to change, but I'm sort of curious too, when people have contradictions, but they're kind of actually fully aware of those as well, a little bit, yeah. you know, I, I and they persist with certain things anyway. I mean, I, I suppose it's a, it's a relatively tricky kind of topic, but you know, like dairy cows, egg laying chickens, pigs, pigs kept in cages. Um, mm-hmm. And yet, all of that suffering often doesn't motivate people to um, you know sort of make a change or, or away from consuming animals. Um, so so what do you make of that? that that sort of when when the contradiction is is sort of known to the person or they're aware of it, and yet there they are kind of still stuck in that contradiction.
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting area of work, and there are some terrific researchers out there looking at the contradiction at differing levels. So on one level, there might be this contradiction around, you know, I try to be compassionate to all life. However, on the other hand, um, I eat um, animals that have been raised in not good conditions. Uh, and that would seem a contradiction. However, on another level, um, you know, you might see yourself as, um, you know, a kind of masculine kind of guy. And if I was to adhere to that sort of masculine kind of ideal Um, eating meat's really important and you know we're the top of the food chain we can eat whatever we want kind of thing and so i can remain uh, congruent with that kind of idea uh but uh whereas eating you know um a more sort of plant-based diet might be contradictory to that and so that's a different kind of motivational force then it's like how are others seeing me or judging me or What are the social norms in my environment like? Um, And so we might have contradictions arise as we're trying to be compassionate, but equally taking those actions might then contradict another kind of desire or want um, socially. Uh, So, you know, a lot of people, and I talk about some research done with different uh, uh, people's different diets and people's views towards those people with diets as they attend uh, functions. And, uh, you know, if you... Say to people you're vegan, um, a lot of people immediately have
0: uh,
1: a lot of uh, uh, annoyance towards you. Um, not you as a person, but just the, the kind of idea of veganism. um And so, uh, uh, you know, often you might then keep that kind of hidden and, and not share it. Um, but, you know, because you don't want to get the backlash. But alternatively, there's part of you that's like, no, this is a really important way of life that, you know, I only found out from someone telling me maybe I should tell them and really push the point. And so there's constant contradictions. And so Mm. I can imagine some people can walk easily around with contradictions because they just change the plane of judgment. So one plane of judgment is through the lens of compassion. Is it compassion or not? But another plane of judgment I can assess on is, is it living up to my kind of, um, social norms of being a man or being a father or being an australian or something and if that's incongruent well you know um sorry if that's congruent that can kind of be what i choose to focus in on because it's easier so you know when cognitive dissonance comes in we can kind of you know uh, just avoid the whole thing together yeah. or it can be something which then we uh, go you know what well, i will we'll try to do something different i guess the thing is it's just it constantly ripples like what we're told today about how to live a healthy lifestyle is very different to what my grandparents were told. Um, so we've got a sea of information coming through, kind of informing us on the best ways to live uh, to live our lives. And it can be sometimes very difficult to know, well, they're telling me this one day, then this, the next. It's, you know, it's a nightmare.
0: Yeah, there's there's these... These contradictions, and and we we uh, we do seem adept at at um, wriggling our way out of the the cognitive dissonance, I suppose. You know, somehow <laughs> or other, the mind is able to to do that. And and the other thing that occurred to me as you were speaking, you know, you mentioned what it is to be a man, for example, might be in in amongst it. I suppose, really, there, there's often contradictions, and there will be some aspects of that that are in our awareness, but there'll be other aspects of it that still aren't in our awareness. And, and you know, I, I went recently to a, um, a motivational interviewing, you mentioned that before, a conference, and Professor Bill Miller, who's the, the kind of one of the founders really of, of MI, he, he's now talking about um, horizontal and vertical ambivalence, you know, that, that horizontal ambivalence might be the two sides of something that are well within our awareness. But vertical ambivalence is where some aspects of our ambivalence are outside of our awareness and and sometimes to um, kind of work through dilemmas or to sort of make certain choices to change and so on. Uh, it really is about bringing those unconscious aspects of ambivalence into consciousness and awareness and being able to, mm-hmm. you know, kind of tease through all of it, I guess, you know, the person who, perhaps from a compassionate point of view feels like maybe they should move towards a plant-based diet then starts to bring awareness to this, what it is to be a man concept and how their manliness is attached to eating meat or something, as you said, they can then, they can then start to, you know, if that's now in, in their awareness, they can start to sort of disentangle that and factor that in and see whether, whether that actually you know is is an important motivator or maybe it isn't or whatever but yeah it's sort of being able to bring awareness to the contradictions and the ambivalences
1: oh absolutely and um i mean that's what don't look up that movie was really all about you know yeah this human contradiction of here, here's an immediate and impending disaster um, that we could avoid if we worked together and bring attention and so on um, and it was all working really like for a, for a lot of it um the movie people really you know after the initial shock, start to galvanize together and coordinate a way to, to stop this disaster from occurring. Um, but you know, within that, there was one group who kind of still saw this as an opportunity for advantage. Mm. Um, that kind of uh, co- competitive kind of motivational force that just override it all and led to our destruction. <laughs> it's kind of like it, it is, I mean, it's not the fact that all humans um, are bad or good. It is a case of, um, you know, these things with time, you know, our, our capacity to, 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 to be able to see into the future and, and, and kind of resist immediate temptation, if you will, at, at certain moments is really hard and really difficult. And um, we, we, we're still working through how best to use that. Uh, and we haven't quite worked that, that one out well. Um, still a lot more science to do I mean not many other species spend as much time I think as what we do on trying to imagine the future world and what it what it will look like a lot is just immediately focused in on the now so how do you go about creating a future world where we are kind of trying to enable us all to have um, a good life as you say and so we've had groups like UN and WHO emerge World Health Organization they're just phenomenal with the kind of work that they're trying to do and promote um you know greater health and well-being um so you know focusing in on, on this kind of stuff is just crucially important
0: hmm. and that's where you finish the book really is is the future of um compassion and where we're heading with all of that and and um it finishes on a once again a, a sort of an optimistic note
1: <laughs> thank you james well, for... the book that makes you depressed <laughs>
0: Well, I think it's 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 justifiable optimism. So we're we're looking we're looking good. But thank you for writing this book, James. I I, I do. It's it's a great contribution. It's 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 a a very easy read, and and yet you know, kind of provides a lot of food for thought and insight, and 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 so on. I think I said somewhere that that people who know you will hear your voice in in amongst the pages of of Choose Compassion and. And people who don't know you will get to know you by by reading this book. You know the the kindness and and um, kind of win, wisdom and, and insight shines through. What what was it like writing it? Well, you sort of mentioned before it, it was up and down, I guess. But yeah, like how, how did it feel writing a book? You know, kind of working with the editors, getting it published.
1: Oh, the editors were fabulous. So um, Madonna Duffy and Margot Lloyd, they were just. Uh... So helpful in, in helping shape how I was trying to express things and cutting out a lot of waffle. Um, I would have had a lot more pop culture references in there, um, but already some of the feedback I've got was uh, from some re- from one reader was, um, "I didn't realise how much you loved movies." <laughs> so, <All right>. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> so it's probably good I reduced the amount of references. But uh, I uh, I said yes to writing the book about literally you know four or five days before uh, the pandemic first began um in mm-hmm. 2020 um and so that has always that's always been there across the whole duration of writing the book uh which has kind of uh in some ways brought compassion to the full uh, because it was like how were we as a community dealing um with with this kind of uh, you know catastrophe if you will and there was so much compassionate response going out it was extraordinary and in some ways it was very inspiring to write um Know at times, but um, it also meant that there were times where I was just locked downstairs in my Harry Potter cupboard, um, whilst Cassie was trying to look after the kids, and it was just so hard. And getting motivated to you know, you're doing everything else, and then to get motivated to try to come up with something that someone would want to read, um, there were just times, um, it didn't come easily, and there were frustrated writings done, (laughs) but overall, it was great, and I learned a whole bunch myself because. Um, There were parts that I just hadn't dug into a lot, like um, compassion contradictions and um, uh, uh, compassion in in different parts of the world and how it's expressed and Mm. how in different cultures it can be big influence uh, on that. And um, certainly AI, uh, artificial intelligence, and sort of thinking about that. Um, They're just things that I probably didn't spend a lot of time focusing on, but I had to read a lot about. So um, that was cool.
0: Well, we really appreciate the effort Uh, that you put into all of that it's it's um no doubt um soon to be on the bestseller list james we'll we'll try to try to make that happen a couple of um a couple of quick fire questions um who is your favorite clinical psychologist in the world
1: oh you can't ask me that it's like saying your favorite child move on
0: (laughs) you were supposed to just automatically say you stan and we were going to move on anyway second secondly
1: Oh, that's such a hard question, my Lord. What would yours be? Can I ask back? Can I ask questions back?
0: Well, let, let's move on to the next one. So, <laughs> and how do you keep your hair so perfectly messy?
1: Oh, by not uh, by doing this. Okay, and um,
0: and and give us, you know, one last, you know, little little practical tip to help us choose compassion. What what would you leave us with on on that?
1: Uh, uh, by the book. i don't know i think maybe um it's just i think probably the best teacher of compassion is actually seeing it so i think the best tip is just try to see it in in your everyday uh, life Um, and if you go looking for it you'll see it and then compassion is contagious if you see it or receive it it's much more likely you yourself will give it to another person so i honestly think you know if you can keep an eye out for it and if your intention can be okay i'm going to try to spot compassion today um that will actually lead you to 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 being more compassionate yourself and i think that's probably one area which we just have not harnessed the the humans are massive imitators we tend to over imitate um i think a really wonderful way to help increase compassion is just to show it much more because Things we see, we tend to do. Beautiful. That's a really great piece of advice. I, I think we can all put
0: that that bit into practice. Well, thanks, James, for take. I've, I've taken quite a bit of your time here this afternoon, so I appreciate that. I'm. I'll. Um. Uh. And uh, yeah. So thanks for being on Compassion in a T-shirt. By the way.
1: <laughs> no, my my first time on the on, on the series. Uh, I love your Compassion in a T-shirt series, <laughs> and uh, thank you so much for giving up your time and. Yeah, Um, reading the book so quickly, oh, my God, that's amazing. Yeah, I've got to say, people like you who, you know, you uh, you appreciate those, you know, people like you who have written books because you read what they've done, you go, oh, my God, that's so clever how they did that. Um, You can kind of appreciate other people's writing a little bit once you've tried yourself. And certainly um, I certainly experienced that when I look back on your gifts of compassion going for little bits and pieces for inspiration. Oh, God, that was so clever the way you, you did that um to help yeah. you know because you're looking at it through a different different perspective
0: very nice all right thanks james we will see you soon